Thank you, Randy and May and congregation. It's always a joy to sing with the people of God here at Woodlawn. Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to Jesus's Sermon on the Mount and more specifically to that center section of this Sermon on the Mount, what you and I affectionately have come to understand as the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. As we read through Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is giving a warning that you'll notice occurs right at the very beginning. Chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has been giving to his people this new covenant, this new kingdom ethic. Jesus has been clearly communicating what it means, what it looks like to live under the right righteousness, under Christ's righteousness in the New Testament, in, in, the, in the New Kingdom. As we think about righteousness, we think about righteousness in two larger contexts. One, there is a forensic sense of righteousness. There is a judicial sense of righteousness. We understand that form of righteousness, particularly as we think about righteousness in connection to salvation. In other words, there was a moment in your life and in my life when we were unrighteous, when we were separated from God in Christ. There was a moment in which every single person seated in this sanctuary this morning, every single person that has ever been created, there was a moment when all of those people, even you and me, were headed to a devil's hell separated from God. But the righteousness of God, that moment of righteousness is that moment in which we confess Jesus as Lord. And the Bible says in that moment that there is a judicial declaration made against my life and your life. It's the, it's, it's, it is as though we have been called into God's courtroom. And here in God's courtroom, at that moment of confession, there is an immediate change in advocate. See, before that moment of confession, we were in God's courtroom, and the prosecutor was declaring at every moment, at every turn, at every breath, that you and I are a sinner guilty before God. But at that moment in which we confess Jesus as Lord, we receive a new advocate, Jesus. And Jesus in that moment stands up, in God's courtroom, and he says to the leading prosecutor, Satan, no, he is not guilty, he is righteous, he or she belongs to me. That's 
a judicial sense of understanding righteousness. God has declared us at a moment in time, you are no longer guilty, you are innocent. But this isn't the righteousness of which Matthew is communicating here. He's talking about the righteousness of living rightly in the kingdom of God, a practical righteousness, we might say. There are moments, even though we have been forensically declared righteous, judicially been declared righteous, there are moments, even in my right standing with God as a believer, that I don't walk rightly with God. And in that moment, we can say, I am unrighteous. So Jesus, in this passage of Scripture, is given a warning that for those who live in the kingdom of God, for those who declare Christ as their Lord, the way in which we practically live out our righteousness must flow from our righteousness that we found in Christ And that righteousness that we have found in Christ practically fleshes itself out in a way that is completely contrary in this passage of Scripture to the Pharisees. Or we might say completely contrary to the way in which the world might anticipate or expect. Jesus, in the totality of the Sermon on the Mount, is concerned with the righteousness of the people of God. Now he's gonna give three examples here in Matthew chapter six, right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. He's gonna give an example of giving, he's gonna give an example of praying, and then he's gonna give an example of fasting. And Jesus is juxtaposing the way in which the Pharisees practice these religious traditions over against the way in which Jesus anticipates those who have rightly experienced God's righteousness to live out these practical righteous actions in our life. So we come to this center section on prayer. And you know the prayer. You've heard this prayer communicated in a number of different ways. But one of the things I want us to see as we move just quickly through this text I want you to see the corporate expression of what Jesus is driving home here. We live in a specific time in American culture and history, and I would say that perhaps this might be true for the totality of the American experiment. We are, at the very heart, rugged individualists in almost every conceivable aspect of life. We are very concerned about me, mine, and what I want to do at this moment. But notice Jesus' concern in this text on the Lord's Prayer. You hear it right from the beginning. How are we to pray? Whose Father? Our Father. And notice Jesus doesn't begin this model prayer by saying we should pray like this. My Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven. But just continue down through this prayer. 
Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give who? Give us this day whose daily bread? Our daily bread. And forgive who? Forgive us our debts. Luke uses the term sins. Matthew uses the term debts. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven whose debtors? Our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Lord's Prayer, in fact, the totality of the greatest sermon recorded, is corporate in nature. Jesus is concerned with how we, as the body of believers, live out our righteousness not only toward him, but toward one another. As we think of it this way, when we have experienced the righteousness of God in salvation, we are reconciled in two ways. We are simultaneously reconciled to God, and secondly, reconciled to one another. This, my friends, is one of the reasons it ought to be exceedingly concerning for us when someone claims to have been reconciled to God, but yet refuses to live out their lives in reconciliation with the body of Christ. In other words, the New Testament knows of no such person who claims God to be their father but rejects the church as his mother. It's why I will say to a person who says that they are a member of a local church but refuses together with the local church, not because they're providentially hindered, it's why I will say to them, you should take no hope in your salvation. Jesus is concerned with how we live out our lives in relationship with one another. And hear these words again. Forgive us, Lord, of our, let's use Luke's text, forgive us of our sins as we do what? And the implication is forgive others who have sinned against us. Who have sinned against you. In other words, this relationship in terms of forgiveness is built on, in other words, my relationship in terms of forgiveness with you and you with me and we with one another is built upon the forgiveness that we have received from Christ. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Are there negative consequences for the believer who is unwilling to forgive the other believer? 
Are there physical consequences for the believer who is unwilling to forgive the other believer? Are there spiritual consequences for the believer who is unwilling to forgive another believer? Let me ask it another way. Are there both and, or and or, consequences for one who sows disunity versus seeking unity in the body. I'd like for us to look at a very practical fleshing out of what I think Jesus is teaching here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that practical example comes directly from the text of Scripture. Look with me to that practical example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'd like to answer the question for us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in the affirmative that there are both physical and spiritual consequences in not pursuing the unity in the body of Christ. Now, you know this text very well. You're all very familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, at least once or twice a month in the context of our gathering, we're referring back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we use it primarily uh, as the text for us celebrating the Lord's Supper. And this is, in fact, Paul's purpose in this text. You'll remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul is by and large writing to a church that has all kind of problems, right? They've got crazy problems that are taking place. The problems uh, are elucidated from the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what's the problem? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they have divided themselves into factions. There are some who like others. There are some who like Paul, there are some who like Apollos. There are some who likes Paul's preaching, and there's some who like Apollos' preaching, and they are murmuring, or murmuring, murmuring among themselves. They're complaining, and they don't like to show up on church on Sunday mornings when Brother Paul is preaching. They want to show up when Brother Apollos is preaching, and so forth and so on. And then it just continues to get crazy and crazy. They like to sue each other, Right? I don't like what you're doing, so I'm going to take you to court. And Paul says, don't do that. Then we get to the heart of the text here in chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. And they not only have these weird relationships that up in the disunity of the body of believers, but they also have some terrible expressions when it comes to worship. And Paul is writing... Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, about one of those problematic expressions in worship. And the problem here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in terms of worship 
is that they are celebrating wrongly the Lord's Supper. Let's read the totality of this text beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, by the way, let's set a number of principles out ahead of time. Anybody want to take a guess at verse 17? I do not commend you. Is that a singular you or a plural you? Man, you guys are really smart. Now, how do you know it's plural? Okay, somebody says talking to the church. How else do you know it's plural? Yes, it's plural in the Greek. Ah, thank you, Sam. We can also see if I don't know any Greek, and, and maybe my English is terrible. I didn't have Carlita Morgan for ninth grade freshman English. I can still tell contextually that this is plural. When you come together, listen at the corporate nature of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are, notice, divisions among you. And I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, Paul is saying it's easy to see the people who cause, you di who cause disunity. All you got to do is set them aside the people that are causing unity. We don't have to publish your name. We don't have to put your face on the screens. It's clearly evident, Paul says, who are sowing seeds of unity and disunity. For there must be factions. Verse 20, when you, notice the text again, when you do what? Come together. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul says there is nothing commendable about upending the unity of the worship of God's people. Now he's going to correct them, verse 23. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, we together proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats 
the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, I want you to pay careful attention in this last paragraph in our Bibles, English Bibles, verses 27 uh, through verse 34. I want you to listen for the times in which Paul uses this word soma, body. Underline it. We'll come back to it. So whoever eats a bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the what? The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died or drowned. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. I grew up in what I suspect is a similar situation in which the majority of you grew up. I grew up in small, rural, country, Southern Baptist churches. I remember first grade Sunday school with Mr. Lewis who taught us the stories of Jesus on a felt board. You remember those? They'd put the little characters up there. They'd stick, and when you wanted to change a character, you'd pull it down and put another one up there. I learned the stories of Jesus that way. But it was also mysteriously written into our bylaws and constitution that the Lord's Supper was to be observed once a quarter. Once a quarter. And the entire service, the entire service was constructed around this taking the Lord's Supper. It was a very mystical, Randy, experience in taking the Lord. It was, it was, it was like a very special, uh, like, like a very special type of moment. It, like we even wore better clothes on the Sunday when we were taking the Lord's Supper. You understand what I'm saying? And as part of that experience, at some point in the service, the preacher would make some type of announcement. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And I want you to search your heart. 
If you have unconfessed sin in your life, confess that now to the Lord. And there was a warning. If you take the Lord's Supper and you have unconfessed sin in your life, watch out. You don't want to be like those in this text who were ill, sick, or died. Or drowned. (laughs) Does that story sound familiar to you? Do you remember that experience of the Lord's Supper? Well, friends, I would like to make an argument to you from this text of Scripture that it is absolutely impossible, or let me say it this way, it's almost absolutely nearly impossible for you or me to ever take the Lord's Supper and be completely free of sin. Paul is not calling us to a sinless participation in the Lord's Supper. So what's the problem? What is the sin that Paul is warning against in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 concerning the Lord's Supper that might cause you to say, time out. I'm not going to participate in the Lord's Supper today. Or time out. Before I do participate, I need to make something right. What is the issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? What is the sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Let's look back at the text, and I'd like to answer it in two ways. The first way that Paul answers this question for us is, in, is with specifics. Paul is saying specifically that the way that a group of people are participating in the Lord's Supper is sowing division. It's upending the process. It's, it's not communicating justice. God's justice. Some people are coming to this, this regular participation, and in some ways they're excluding others. How are they excluding others? They're the first people to go through the line at members' meal, and they're the ones who come out with their plate like this. You know what I'm saying? And then it's the last person that goes through and says, gracious me alive. There's no chicken. All the roast is gone. The banana pudding's gone. Ain't no cornbread here. What am I going to do? Paul says the problem is, in this specific example, that that the Lord's Supper is part of a larger meal, and, and there are just a lot of people that are primarily looking out for who? Themselves. They're being exceedingly selfish when they come to the Lord's Supper. So that's the very specific practical example that Paul gives. 
But what is the larger overarching issue that Paul has a problem with that could be a thousand different other examples? What's that larger over issue? Come back with me to that paragraph beginning in verse 27. And I want to read this together again this morning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What is that unworthy manner? Is going to be guilty concerning the what? The body and the blood of the Lord. Let me just take a time out and ask you, what is the body of Christ? Somebody said it. The church. The church is the body of Christ. We do not believe in transubstantiation. We do not believe that I say some type of magical prayer over the elements and it automatically then changes into the body and blood of Christ. So what is the body of Christ? The church, we know that from the New Testament. So if you do this wrongly, if you participate wrongly, and the Lord's Supper, you're going to be guilty in some fashion toward the body of Christ, toward the people of God. Let a person therefore examine himself, and so eat of the body and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without doing what? Discerning what? The body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is your answer, friends. This is Paul's concern. The way in which you and I participate in the Lord's Supper is a communication of what we believe and hope in large measure toward one another. So how do I eat and drink of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner that shows no concern for the body? Well, I think we could come up with a number of things, but contextually... Let me answer that the primary problem Paul has is for those who sow disunity in the body of Christ. Now, he gave us a very practical way in which some were showing, sowing and showing disunity. But perhaps, friends, the greatest expression of disunity is when I harbor bitterness toward my brother Jim. And that bitterness festers in my heart. It sits there and it cooks up. And I even get to the point where I can't even stand to see him. I don't even like to see him. He comes out of Sunday school this way and I'm walking that way and I see him and all of a sudden I get the feeling I need to go back to my office for a reason. So I start walking this way. My brother Jim is walking this way. And I participate in the Lord's Supper. 
Friends, you can't have unity where there is unforgiveness. You can't have right fellowship with the body when unforgiveness is seated in a prominent position in your heart. This is the warning that Paul is giving when it comes to the Lord's Supper. This is the warning about physical consequences and spiritual consequences when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And by the way, the Lord's Supper is not an individual expression that we want to have some type of mystical experience with God So we invite the preacher over to our house for dinner one night and say, would you please serve us the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is intended as a corporate expression of what the church first and foremost believes about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Did you hear it? What do we do when we collectively participate in the Lord's Supper? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We preach Jesus. But what are we also saying? It's a reciprocal communication when we participate in the Lord's Supper. It's though we are a choir that is singing to one another and the sound is bouncing off the walls and back to us. Yes, I believe you to be a believer. That's what we are saying in the Lord's Supper. Baptism is your entrance into the body of Christ. Your participation in the Lord's Supper is a communication that you remain in the body of Christ. Friends, one of the assurances of salvation that God has given to you and me is our regular participation in the Lord's Supper. And by exclusion from the Lord's Supper, it's also a means that God has given to the church to bring about reconciliation in our lives in terms of righteousness, so that when I am sowing seeds of disunity, and those seeds of disunity communicate that I'm not a believer, and the church says to me through a process of church discipline, We don't believe you to be a believer. We're going to exclude you. We're going to say to you that you can't participate in the Lord's Supper. Now we're back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. God has given the church the means of church discipline for what purpose? Reconciliation. Did you hear the prayer of Jesus? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And friends, when we don't get that directive right, it has physical and spiritual implications. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his word. We thank you that in Christ, as your people, we have received forgiveness.
we thank you that in that forgiveness, God, you have reconciled us to one another and most importantly, to you. And as we think on this text this morning, God, would you renew within our hearts a desire to live rightly before you, to walk in righteousness, to live righteously, to live holy. Why? Because our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We want to be holy because you, our God, are holy. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on this concept of unity in the body of Christ? Would you answer that question in your own heart? How are you pursuing the unity of the body of Christ? How are you pursuing disunity? Would you ask God by His Spirit to show you if you have unconfessed sin in your life toward another brother or sister in the life of this church? And if you do, would you ask the Lord to grant you the courage to go make it right? For the Scripture says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. For the Bible declares, love covers a multitude of sins. How about in your families? What about in the context of your own home? Do you have unity? Is there harmony? Is there peace? Perhaps this morning after this service, you need to go home and speak with your wife and make a confession that you've not been a loving, sacrificing husband. Perhaps you're a child here today and you need to go home and, and call your dad and say, Dad, I've got to be honest. I've harbored some bitterness in my heart towards you. Would you do it so that we can see unity in the church and in the home? In just a moment, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. As we sing, friend, perhaps through the preaching of this text, you realize that there is no unity. There is only disunity. And that might be because you've never trusted in Christ. You've never believed in this gospel narrative that Christ died for your sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. And you've heard of this unity, this 
spoken of this morning and you desire that in your life. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front. We'll be glad to share with you. But friend, you don't have to come forward and see one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you that would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you'd like for one of us to pray with you. To pray that the peace of God would be present in your life. To pray with you that God would give you the courage to go to that family member, that church member that you know you have bitterness or anger or disunity with. We would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God is impressed upon your heart that this is a church in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with Christ. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. And we ask this morning, Lord, that our responses might be pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with